From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. With the impeachment trial over and the president acquitted, we hear from Colorado Representative Jason Crow and Senator Cory Gardner about what they think the nation gained and lost in the endeavor. And Colorado has one of the highest rates of teen vaping in the nation. So what do e-cigarette companies have to say about their role in that? We'll break down their testimony to Congress. Then, should college athletes be able to make money off endorsements? For me, it's really not about whether or not college athletes are playing for the love of the game or for the paycheck. For me, it's about this organization, the NCAA, making hundreds of millions of dollars off the work that these athletes are doing. Plus, when does a child become an adult? Even some researchers are calling the 18 to 23 period late adolescence. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. It took about a half hour for the U.S. Senate to acquit President Donald Trump of abuse of power in obstruction of justice. That ended an unexpected high-profile role for freshman Congressman Jason Crow of Colorado. He's one of the Democratic representatives who prosecuted the impeachment case. Congressman, welcome back to the program. Hi, Avery. Where were you when the vote happened, and what did you think as you watched it? Well, we were sitting at the House manager table on the floor of the U.S. Senate that was about 20 feet from Chief Justice Roberts, uh, sitting in front of the the Democratic side of the senators. And, you know, it was a very uh, somber time as we went through and and senators uh, either stood up and said guilty or not guilty. I think uh, we were all surprised by Mitt Romney's uh, vote of guilty and, and, uh, in our view, was truly a a profile in courage. It seemed with the Republican majority in the Senate that this outcome, it was never really in doubt. President Trump's approval ratings in the Gallup poll are now the highest since he took office, perhaps a danger sign for Democrats like yourself. Was impeachment worth it? Well, I think it's always worth it to do your duty and to stand up for the Constitution and to defend the country. Uh, I think history will show that and history will treat those well who stood up during this time to fight for our Constitution and our very valuable system. So I, I never regret doing that. You spoke. The Washington Post somehow counted 18,000 words during the Senate trial. Was there a moment that stood out for you, the words that you would want to go down in history? You know, there were a lot of moments that, that stood out for me. Um, I, I gave several speeches you know, at the beginning of the trial. I spoke about my time in service and what it felt like to be a soldier, to not have the equipment that you needed when you needed it, and how you know the, the withholding of the military aid to Ukraine uh, had an impact on the people that were fighting that war. And then I spoke later about my children and why I was doing what I was doing and kind of the legacy that we would all pass on to our children and uh, trying to uphold the Constitution and, and show that certain things are worth fighting for. In your closing remarks, you talked about a poster on your son's bedroom wall, actually, and it's a quote from a character in a Harry Potter series, a very wise professor. The quote is from Professor Dumbledore, who said, It is our choices that show who we truly are, far more than our abilities. This trial will soon be over, but there will be many choices for all of us in the days ahead, the most pressing of which is how each of us will decide to fulfill our oath. More than our words, our choices will show the world who we really are, what type of leaders we will be and what type of nation we will be. So with the impeachment over and the president acquitted, what does the result say about who we really are as a country and what type of nation we will be? 
Well, I think this is a, really a story about people that showed a lot of courage. There were some Democratic senators from states that President Trump won who showed a lot of courage to do the right thing. Senator Romney did the same. There are people that are standing up and saying, you know, this is not okay, that we're not going to walk away and allow this to become the new normal, that, uh, you know, we are better than this. And they're standing up across the country and saying that. So for me, this is a story of of the good in our country, the people who are willing to, to fight uh, for right, and that, you know, right matters at the end of the day. And in your closing argument at the trial, you said the Constitution's framers chose the Senate as the jury because they believed it would be, quoting you here, the court of greatest impartiality. Did that hold true here? Well, I, I think there were a lot of people uh, in the Senate uh, who did not do what they were supposed to do and did not uphold their duty to be impartial jurors. You know, this was ultimately the first Senate trial in American history, the first impeachment trial in American history that didn't have witnesses and documents. That's not right. That's not what the Constitution and our founders envisioned. And uh, the, the acquittal of President Trump will always have an asterisk at the end of it because it didn't go through the full process and we didn't have the benefit of all the information and the entire picture of what President Trump did here. Now, ultimately, the truth will come out. We will have that information. Ambassador Bolton's book will be published. People will write about this. Maybe some future administration will release the documents that we've been seeking. The truth will come out and people will have the full picture. Unfortunately, the Senate decided that it didn't want to hear it when it needed to hear it. When we talk about witnesses and evidence, should the House have pushed harder to get those into the Senate trial? Well, the House pushed really hard to get that information. You know, uh, over the past uh, almost year, the House uh, committees that have been conducting investigation and inquiry did subpoena witnesses. Ambassador Bolton made it really clear that he was going to fight that subpoena. And actually, to this day, uh, we're still fighting uh, to get the information from Don McGahn, who we subpoenaed last April. But what's really shocking to the president's argument that we should have pushed harder, we should, we should have subpoenaed this, uh, this information, is that on the very same day last week that the president's lawyers were making that argument in the impeachment trial, across town in Washington, D.C., another set of, the Washington, uh, of President Trump's lawyers were actually sitting in court making the exact opposite argument, that the House does not have constitutional authority to subpoena that information. So they were making, uh, on the same day, the exact opposite argument. So that duplicity, I think, is, is very telling. And I will never stop reminding folks that it is the Senate's job to hold the trial. This was not a court of appeals. The record was not set. Uh, trials have documents and witnesses. Trials get to more evidence. That's the role of a trial. And for the uh, the Senate to say that the entire record had to be established in the House is just not true. Your Colorado colleague, Republican Senator Cory Gardner, voted to acquit. He said Trump withheld military aid to Ukraine not for political gain, but to send that government a message about corruption. Gardner said that it was a policy decision, not an impeachable offense. Your thoughts? Well, the trial showed unequivocally that that's just not true. Uh, Cory Gardner is not telling uh, the truth there. He is doing what he feels is politically in his own best interest instead of doing what is right and upholding his oath. And uh, it's very disappointing for him to say something that the trial unequivocally showed not to be the case. Uh, there was no policy discussion going on with the, the administration. There was no debate. Uh, it's very clear that the president was withholding this aid to benefit his own reelection campaign and course an ally to help him uh, in doing so. Uh, And that's what this trial was about. Now, taking a different tack, several Republican senators have said recently that they hope the president has learned his lesson, that he'll be more cautious now. Do you think the president will behave differently? 
Well, I think history shows that the president uh, doesn't change his behavior. You know, he has shown us repeatedly who he is, uh, and I think it's time that we believe him. And we take uh, that seriously. I don't think he's going to change. Uh, and, and as you just said, by many Republican senators' own admission, we actually proved the facts. You know, contrary to what Senator Gardner said, uh, there were many Republican senators who actually said that uh, it was inappropriate and it was abusive uh, and what he did wasn't right. Uh, so by their own admission, uh, I think we showed our case. Uh, and I don't think the president uh, uh, has learned. And in fact, uh, this week, shortly after the acquittal, he said as much uh, that uh, he didn't think that he did anything wrong and his call was perfect. So I don't think um, his behavior is going to change. What needs to change is Congress's willingness to actually check uh, his power and, and be the co-equal branch that we need to be. Let's switch topics a bit and talk about what happened at the end of the president's State of the Union speech when Speaker Nancy Pelosi tore up her copy of the speech in front of the cameras. Was that appropriate? Well, I, I don't, uh, you know, I think what was not appropriate was President Trump coming into the House, coming into the Capitol uh, and making this a campaign rally, you know, uh, starting off with uh, members uh, of the Congress chanting four more years, uh, then going to you know, presenting Rush Limbaugh, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, uh, and doing a number of other things that uh, broke with precedent uh, and really important um, tradition in the House where uh, this is supposed to be an aspirational uniting speech that Republicans and Democrats in the past have done. So uh, the president came in and uh, told a lot of uh, mistruths and misleading statements. And uh, I, I think that um, you know the focus should be on what the president did uh, and how people react to that. Obviously, people react to it in different ways. And I want to ask just one more thing about the State of the Union. Um, on the one hand, one of Democrats' strongest complaints about Trump is the tone that he set, this lack of civility. And I wonder if Pelosi's action was doing something along those same lines. Well, I think it's really important that we continue to, to take the high road and we show the country what we can and, and should be. Uh, and that's what we're going to continue to do. You know, the, the president came in and, and said things that just were not true. Uh, he refused to shake the speaker's hand. Uh, he did a lot of things that uh, broke with precedent that uh, he could have done differently if he wanted to try to unite the country and show that we could move forward in a, in a better way. Representative Crow, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you. Jason Crow represents Colorado's 6th Congressional District. He served as an impeachment manager during the trial of President Donald Trump. Colorado senators split their impeachment votes on party lines. Democrat Michael Bennett voted to convict the president. Republican Cory Gardner voted to acquit on both charges. Before the vote, Gardner spoke with CPR's Binta Berkland. Senator, thanks for being here. I want to focus on this historic vote and how you came to your decision. First off, why vote to acquit the president? Well, this is a heavy burden to remove for the first time in our nation's history a duly elected president of the United States, and that burden was not met. You can't just simply come to the Senate, say you have an airtight case, uh, we should just impeach the president in the quickest investigation ever to take place in the House of Representatives and then turn around and ask the Senate to do more work. If a case is airtight, then it shouldn't need more tightening, and that's exactly what we saw. Uh, so this is a high burden over a, a policy consideration that uh, I don't believe we should be removing for the first time in our country's history, the duly elected president of the United States. What about this underlying issue in the case that the president was accused of pressuring a U.S. ally to take actions that would benefit him politically? From what you've learned about what happened, did the president's actions cross any lines for you? Well, I think that's the very heart of the case. This is, a, this is a policy question. Does the United States have the ability to investigate how its taxpayer dollars are being spent? 
uh, concern about corruption, particularly in Ukraine, was clear. It's been clear for many administrations, including President Obama, who appointed uh, Vice President Biden to be uh, the chief of corruption, looking into corruption in Ukraine. So we have to be able, as a country, to determine how our money is being spent, uh, and that is not an impeachable offense. So in your mind, the president didn't cross the line because it it has to do with the overall issue of corruption? The question before the Senate in the impeachment trial was whether or not the president has the ability to investigate how taxpayer dollars are being spent. Uh, And uh, that is not something, a policy difference cannot be used for grounds of impeachment. It it sounds like you're comfortable with, with what he and his allies did related to Ukraine. Is that fair? The question before the the trial was whether or not the United States government has the ability to determine how our taxpayer dollars are being spent. We have to have that ability. Uh, That's what President Obama asserted when Vice President Biden was named to address corruption in Ukraine. Uh, And that's what we have done all around the globe. And you heard that in the trial. But uh, uh, to think that we can't investigate corruption simply because it involves a a, a particular family, that's that's just not uh, the way we work. Voters in November will make a decision on President Trump and Europe for re-election as well. Voters across the political spectrum have said they do want to know what you think about this. But, of course, the election's months away. How much do you think this will play into your re-election efforts? There were some who were hoping this would play into that election effort. Um, Chuck Schumer said this is a win-win situation because we either impeach the president or it impacts the the political futures of the Senate majority. That is a very sick way to look at this. I look at this as a very serious moment in our country's history, a very sad moment in our country's history that we have to move forward from to actually start accomplishing things for the people of Colorado. This vote sets a precedent that the White House has the authority not to cooperate with impeachment investigations What do you think that will mean for the future? Well, that's just not true. Uh, Just because President Clinton lied and and, and did not receive the actual conviction in the Senate doesn't mean that he could turn around and lie again. What we have to recognize is the, the precedent that would have been set here is actually the precedent of weaponizing impeachments. The House carried out the fastest impeachment investigation in the history of our country. They did so not by authorizing it with the full House, but retroactively authorizing it, and then sent it over to the Senate, expecting the Senate to do its work. This is a a blatant attack on separation of powers. It impacts our constitutional rights and the prerogatives of the separate but equal branches of government. And it certainly would allow any House, a Republican, Democrat, to just decide, you know what, we're going to move to impeach. Uh, give us a couple days, we'll send it over to the Senate and expect them to do the job. The government's watchdog concluded the Trump administration broke the law by withholding Ukraine aid. Should there be any consequence for a president when they do that? Well, look, I think the aid was released. It was released because Congress was pushing this aid to get released, and it was released before the end of the fiscal year. I strongly supported Ukraine lethal aid. In fact, I remember pushing President Obama to give lethal aid to the Ukrainians. I think President Obama was worried that it would affect his relationship with Vladimir Putin. People were dying in Ukraine and they needed this lethal aid. And that's why I continue to do what I do in supporting Ukraine. Finally, Senator, I I wanted to make sure listeners are clear on your conclusion on the underlying evidence in the impeachment trial. You feel it showed no improper behavior by the president, yes? The question is whether or not uh, you can use taxpayer dollars with impunity. Uh, or does the government have the ability to investigate corruption and how those taxpayer dollars are being spent? Uh, and that's, that's a policy difference, and we should not be impeaching presidents uh, based on policy differences. 
Republican Senator Cory Gardner talking with CPR's Binta Birkeland. She also asked Gardner about why the president fired the American ambassador to Ukraine who was fighting corruption there. Gardner said it only furthered his point that there are indeed corruption issues in that country. Congress put the CEOs of the biggest e-cigarette companies on the stand Wednesday and grilled them about their role in the teen vaping epidemic. It was an echo of those iconic hearings from more than 20 years ago when tobacco executives testified before Congress about the dangers of smoking. Those hearings were a turning point in the anti-tobacco movement. CPR health reporter John Daly joins us now. Hi, John. Good morning, Avery. As I mentioned, there were moments in yesterday's hearing that echoed those in 1994 when tobacco executives had to answer questions about cigarette health dangers. What stood out to you? Well, it was fascinating. In 1994, tobacco executives from the largest companies were asked if nicotine is addictive. They each denied it. But by four years later, after anti-tobacco efforts totally gained momentum, they returned and completely reversed course. Well, yesterday, Colorado Democratic Representative Diana DeGette asked vaping executives the same questions, and they admitted nicotine is addictive. Deget also questioned the CEOs about medical studies linking nicotine to health problems involving the lungs, blood pressure, heart rate, and the heart. Jewel is far and away the market leader. Its CEO, Casey Crossway, didn't answer specific health impacts. Do you maintain that nicotine causes no health consequences in people then? No, nicotine is addictive. And, and does it have health consequences? It can cause harm. He said his company would submit health studies as part of an FDA approval process later this year. Ahead of the hearing, DeGette said she wanted to know how the e-cigarette makers intend to address teen vaping. What did they have to say? Yeah, she and other committee members really pressed them on that. All the CEOs said they were taking steps to limit sales to young people, but they mostly sidestepped this issue. Now, the landscape for e-cigarette manufacturers is shifting dramatically. Most flavored e-cigarettes have to be off store shelves beginning February 6th. That's today. All makers of the products have to submit an application in May to the Food and Drug Administration. Then it'll decide which products can still be sold legally. And the courts are now also taking a look at their business practices some lawmakers yesterday pushed Juul and the others to pull all their products off the market voluntarily until teen vaping rates are brought down, and none of them agreed to do that. Now, I should say, Colorado has the highest measured rate of teen e-cigarette use in the nation. One in five Colorado teens has tried vaping. So did Juul say anything in the hearing about their marketing practices? They're facing a lot of lawsuits claiming that they specifically targeted teens. Yeah, Jewel didn't really fess up to anything or drop any bombshells. In fact, they talked about how they've dramatically scaled back their marketing in recent months. But the lawsuits allege Jewel actually pulled straight from the tobacco company's playbooks in a major settlement case two decades ago. Big tobacco companies were banned from using marketing strategies targeting youth like the famous Joe Camel ads. But nothing stopped Jewel from doing that. The litigation alleges Jewel followed 
that playbook and they developed a sophisticated ad campaign. I've read that they also used uh, influencers as a way to reach if, or create, if you will, a youth market. Yeah, that's right. According to the litigation, Jewel paid social media influencers to post to social media photos of themselves using Jewel devices and using its hashtags. This is, again, according to the complaint. It hired an ad agency specifically to identify and recruit social media influencers that had at least 30,000 followers. So that's a lot. And that's uh, according to an internal Jewel email. So the claim is that's another way to get at a youth market. Right. Okay, going back to this question of whether these hearings were a watershed moment for vaping the way the hearings in the 90s were for smoking, how significant did this feel? Well, it was a lot quieter yesterday than in the 90s, it seems. Some of that was because it was happening at the exact same time as yesterday's impeachment hearing and vote. So it's almost really was completely overshadowed by that. And the media landscape has changed. It's fractured, really, since the mid-90s. But clearly, anytime e-cigarette makers testify before Congress, the industry, public health advocates, parents, families that are concerned about this issue, they're all watching. And the public has really gotten way more educated about vaping. So the companies really have a lot at stake at this moment. Uh, I think you could say that they're at a crossroads. But that's not just, that's not just because of hearings, right? Yeah, I would say yesterday's hearing was the least of their troubles. Momentum has been steadily building for measures, new rules and enforcement at the federal, state and local level to contain this epidemic. And that's especially true after people started getting sick last year with these vaping related illnesses. Also, Juul is increasingly facing legal action. By one estimate, it faces now more than 300 lawsuits over claims that deliberately targeted teens. Denver, plus three counties, Pitkin, Eagle, and Boulder, have joined that litigation. All the executives were under oath at the hearing, and things in congressional testimony can definitely be used in these lawsuits. I have to wonder, could this all mean the end of Juul? That would be a huge development. Like you said, this is the largest e-cigarette company. Uh, That would be huge. At this point, it seems highly unlikely, but we have seen big changes at late of late at Juul. Last fall, it replaced its CEO with the new one that we heard from earlier. They shuffled other top executives. They laid off 650 people, and that's about a sixth of their workforce. Many of those that were cut were from their marketing department. They cut spending by a billion dollars. I talked to one business expert at the University of Denver. His name is uh, Chris Hewen. He called Juul's downward slide an insane drop in valuation. He said back in 2018, Juul's sales were soaring, but that's when tobacco giant Altria bought a 35% stake in the company. And since then, it's, the valuation of Juul has really dropped considerably. He says it was a big mistake in that making that investment. Still, he thinks that at least the, the amount that they paid, he thinks that vaping isn't going away and that Juul will ultimately make it through this current turmoil. I think it's, it's all survivable. But in the end, when you have someone who owns 35% of your company that has uh, you know, incredible financial resources, it's unlikely to go under. The problem with Altria is they're, they're getting dragged into some of these lawsuits. In about the 40 seconds we have left, what's the next thing we should watch for? Well, you know, if you're a keen observer, you might have noticed that jewels are uh, really steeply discounted right now in Colorado. You might have seen some of the signs. It's almost like a fire sale on these products. They're being sold for about a third of the price that they once were. And I was told that's because store owners are looking to get rid of inventory before they have to clear the shelves of pod and cartridge-based e-cigarettes. That's except for tobacco and menthol products, and that's by this deadline today. Thanks, John. You bet. 
CPR health reporter John Daly tracking testimony by the makers of e-cigarettes before Congress. When we come back, should student-athletes be paid to play? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Senator Michael Bennett is going all in in New Hampshire. He staked his presidential campaign on a February surprise, a strong showing at the first in the nation primary. I'm going to spend a lot of time here, and the, and the way I'm going to win it is by being in living room after living room after living room after living room. I'm Caitlin Kim with CPR News. As voters in New Hampshire take to the polls, we'll be on the ground to hear how Bennett is faring and how he stacks up to the other Democratic presidential contenders. Tune in to CPR News or CPR.org. Do college athletes still play for the love of the game, or is that idealistic? A new bill in the state legislature may signal an era of change where the standouts get paid to play their sport. Senate Bill 12023, loosely referred to as Fair Pay to Play, allows elite athletes to accept endorsements in exchange for the use of their name, image, and likeness. California became the first state to pass this type of law last fall. Now at least a dozen states, including Colorado, are racing to get this on the books. If passed, Colorado's law would go into effect by August of 2021. So why is this happening now? Our next guest is the only athlete in history to ski in the Winter Olympics and also be drafted into the NFL. Jeremy Bloom has fought for pay-to-play since he was a two-time All-American football player at the University of Colorado, while at the same time training for the Olympic ski team, winning world championships. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Avery. Thanks for having me. Jeremy, between 2002 and 2004, you were a standout in freestyle skiing and football. The NCAA didn't like that. You had to make a choice between the two. Tell us about what happened. Yeah, I, I became an Olympic skier um, before I enrolled in the University of Colorado after my senior year of high school. And that was in Salt Lake City in the year of 2002. And I ended that, that year as the number one ranked skier in the world. And, you know, my football coach, Gary Barnett, and my ski coaches were excited for me to embark on this dual sports career, playing football and going to school at the University of Colorado and continuing to ski and ultimately aim for what would be my second Olympics in 2006. But unfortunately, the, the NCAA didn't see it that way. You know, they, they told me that if I wanted to play football at the University of Colorado, that I would have to forego all of my corporate endorsement contracts, things like skis and ski boots and poles and goggles, um, that was paying for, you know, what is an expensive sport to travel around the world and, you know, compete at the highest level. And unfortunately, they, you know, weren't willing to, to budge for me to be able to either A, capitalize on my name, image, and likeness that was developed before I even hit the college scene, um, or B, accept endorsements to pay for um, the cost to be an Olympic athlete. And both of those, A and B, are changing now, and it's an exciting time. So you eventually chose skiing, but that skiing endorsement money made you ineligible to compete in college football. But you sued the NCAA, right? Yeah, I, I actually initially chose both, and so I you know, did sue the NCAA in, in uh, Boulder County Court. Um, I did not win that, that, uh, that suit in the court system, and so I um, tore up all my contracts, and I played football for two, two seasons, my freshman and, and sophomore season, and then I just didn't really have the resources anymore to continue to ski, and I really wanted to try for my second Olympics. 
And so I told the NCAA I was going to accept endorsement contracts for my skiing, and that's when they declared me ineligible and didn't allow me to play my junior and senior year. It's a complicated decision. Late last fall, California passed a bill which allows the best athletes to hire agents and take endorsements for their name, likeness, and image. It also kept the NCAA from punishing the colleges and student-athletes for taking the money. The NCAA loudly opposed the bill, but later, under pressure by other states to get on the bandwagon, the NCAA reversed its policy, voting to, quote, modernize as quickly as it can. Do you trust that the NCAA will do that? (laughs) Do I trust the NCAA? The answer is no, I don't. And they did come out and say that they now um, believe that it's the right thing to do for name, image, and likeness, and they also believe that it's the right thing to do for Olympic athletes to be able to pay for training expenses while being in college, but nobody's really seen the bylaws yet, and until you see the bylaws, the NCAA is really good at coming out with a favorable statement to disarm public pressure and then write a a highly restrictive bylaws against that, which makes it basically impossible for 90% of the people that it would go to serve. So, you know, let's wait and see, right? While you're playing at CU, did you notice other athletes were suffering because under the NCAA rules, they couldn't work and couldn't accept money from endorsements? Well, what I saw is the hypocrisy of other two-sport athletes doing exactly what I was hoping to do. Drew Henson made $1.2 million while playing professional baseball and amateur football at Michigan, and Ricky Williams did the same at Texas, and there's many other examples. So I didn't understand why they would allow those those guys to do it, but they wouldn't allow Olympic athletes to do it. Um, to your earlier question, absolutely. You, you see kids come to schools from inner-city environments and, and families that, that lack financial resources to really support them while they're in college. And the hope and dream is that a scholarship will pay for everything. But not until recently were schools required to fund scholarships at the true cost to attend that school, which is different in any location. The cost to attend Boulder, Colorado is more than it would cost to attend Kansas State, for example. And so that's starting to change as well. So we're seeing all kinds of good and positive change come. We're not fully there yet, at least in in my view. And those true costs you're talking about, those stem largely from the cost of living. I want to bring in Democratic State Senator Jeff Bridges, a co-sponsor of the bill. Jeff, thank you for being here with us. Hi, Avery. Thanks for having me. The fair pay to play bill is said to be about equity for athletes. But what about equity in the locker room? Are you afraid that this will cause resentment among the haves and have nots? Well, I think Jeremy is probably more equipped to answer that particular question. But backing up and and looking at the purpose of this bill, you know, for for me, it's really not about whether or not college athletes are playing for the love of the game or for the paycheck. For me, it's about this organization, the NCAA, making hundreds of millions of dollars off the work that these athletes are doing. And for me, this is about the Colorado value of fairness. It's about giving those players the chance to uh, earn what it is that they deserve. And the NCAA appears to be on board nationally. Why even go to the trouble of passing a bill in Colorado? Well, so Jeremy said he doesn't trust the NCAA. I would say I trust the NCAA, but trust and verify, right? We are passing this bill to make sure the NCAA holds up its end. And if they don't, then we'll pass more bills and we'll do what it is that's right for the students here in Colorado. Now, critics wonder why college athletes need more than a college scholarship and room and board. 
How do you respond? That's a, it's a great question. You know, we have uh, so many stories from athletes across the country. One, one in particular that really moved me, there was a kid playing football down in Texas. And at that point, it was scholarship only. And he was actually living out of his car, star player living out of his car. And one of his teammates said, hey, why don't you come stay at my place? And so that guy's parents put him up. And then he was kicked off the team. And the NCAA barred him from playing for a year because he had accepted some sort of compensation for his playing. That's absurd. You, you know, what these athletes are doing, what they are, what they are giving to their team, what they're giving, frankly, in profits to the NCAA, many of these folks are not going to make a professional career, and they are sacrificing their bodies on the field every single day. And so we just want to make sure that the people who are really doing the work here are the ones who are allowed at least to benefit in some way from the value that they're bringing. And Jeremy, your situation was different. You needed money to continue your skiing. Um, but what about an athlete who, for instance, is not an international skiing star competing only in one sport? That athlete is going on a full ride to college scholarship, plus room and board in many cases, eating at a training table with, I assume, a lot of better food than you're getting at dorms. Why do you think they should be paid extra for, say, allowing their image on a Wheaties box? Well, I think it's important to note one difference. This is not the school or the NCAA paying these athletes um, anything more than they're paying on a college scholarship. So I think it's important to note that. To the question, look broadly across the university, not just in athletics, right? If you're on a music scholarship, you can get paid to play music. If you're a writer, you can get paid to, to, to write a book while in college. And there's all kinds of other precedents just people going to school that aren't athletes are able to capitalize on their name, image, and likeness. So why are sports any different? And Jeff, what do you believe are the bill's chances of passing? I think given that the NCAA has indicated that this is a friendly bill, uh, you know, we, we have CU in full support. They, I don't think, would be in full support if we didn't think the NCAA was going to be doing the right thing here. This is something that I worked on last year with Republican Senator Owen Hill. It was a bipartisan effort. And we didn't introduce the bill last year because we wanted to work with folks like CU and other colleges and universities around the state to make sure that we were doing the right thing for the student athletes here in Colorado. And so we did that work. We have come back this year. I'm working with Senator Rhonda Fields on it this year. And, and I think that the bill's chances of success are almost guaranteed. And one thing that I, I want to point out here that, that Jeremy alluded to is that this bill specifically prohibits pay. This is not the college or the university or the NCAA paying athletes. This is allowing athletes to profit from use of their name, image, and likeness outside of the arena of what it is they're doing with the school. So student athletes under this bill still won't get a salary. Right, exactly. Let's get some perspective now from CU Athletic Director Rick George. He joins us I from Boulder. I have nothing to say after those two. I mean, they've just hit it all. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Rick. We understand that you helped with the language in this bill. What did you add to the language? I didn't really add anything to the language. You know, I, they wanted our feedback on this bill, and we had some discussions on that. And I, I think generally we're on the same page. You know, we think this bill is good. And going back to what Jeremy just said, you know, we feel strongly, strongly that our student-athletes ought to be able to monetize their name, image, and likeness just like a student, a music student on campus. And this is an, another part of the evolution of the NCAA. Sometimes the NCAA gets criticized because they don't move as quick as 
we would like them to move. But as Jeremy said, you know, the legislation that has been put forward over the last five to 10 years, and we do have student athletes that come here, uh, even though they're on a full scholarship, they're getting Pell Grant money and they need support. So, you know, we instituted the full cost of attendance. You know, as Jeremy said, the NCAA in the last two weeks, I voted on this measure to allow elite Olympic sport athletes to be able to receive training expenses and coaching expenses. And and that's an important step. And, and the full cost of attendance, what we're doing in the way of nutrition and meals, and that was legislation four years back. And if Jeremy knew what we ate today, it's pretty fantastic what we do for our student athletes in those regards. So we have made some pretty strong moves in the area of providing more for our student athletes. I think this is the next obvious step that we need to address. And I'm very thankful for Senators uh, Fields and and Bridges for being the sponsors on this bill uh, and having other co-sponsors and other sponsors that allow us to provide our student athletes with what our students are getting. If this law is not passed, what will that mean for Colorado University athletics? Do you think the state will fall behind? No, I, I, you know, I certainly don't think the state will fall behind. And, and you know, also, you know, you've got to, there, there's got to be some consistency. And that's one thing I like about this bill is there's a lot of consistency with other states. And you can't operate um, a competition with 50 different rules in, in, in 50 different states. And so, um, I, I, you know, that's why our bill is really good. Um, I, I'm uh, very supportive of it. And um, um Colorado is going to be right in the middle of, of those discussions as we move forward. Senator Bridges, is there any opposition to this bill? None that we've experienced so far. And and I just say, building on, on Rick's point, you know, a 50-state patchwork is not something any of us want. But I look at Congress right now, and I'm not super optimistic that really anything is going to be coming out from uh, from the folks we have in Washington right now. So this is something that we've worked on with CU. It's something where we've looked at what other states are doing, and we've tried to, as much as possible, make sure that what we're doing is consistent with what other folks are doing across the country, because we want to avoid that patchwork. And again, you know, we, we have built into this an assumption that the NCAA is going to be doing the right thing for college athletes. If they do, then we're in a great place. And if they don't, then we have the tools we need to make sure at least our Colorado student-athletes are protected. And if this bill does pass, how do you see it affecting college athletics in Colorado going forward? Well, look, I I think what it does is it's going to allow our student-athletes to be able to benefit uh, in a way uh, that hopefully will provide them some additional resources uh, while they're on our campuses. I mean, um, you know, again, we've put a lot of things in place for our student-athletes, but uh, if they're able to monetize off their name, image, and likeness, that's going to give them uh, another opportunity um, to leave here debt-free and um, creating a career for themselves once they leave here. I wonder what you all think about the idea of this magic that we get college students playing these sports for the love of it, not accepting money. Jeremy, do you think that it affects that there will be a loss of innocence in that way? I just don't think that that's the issue at, at hand. I you know, we we can't aim for this idealistic world where everything is pure and nobody has an advantage. I mean, really, the biggest counter argument to, to, to this is that, well, hey, what about the big money schools? They're going to have an advantage because they have bigger markets, they have bigger budgets, their student athletes are going to have more opportunity. And you know what? That That may be true, but that's no different than how it exists today. The more money a school has, 
the more notoriety a school has, the more often they're in championship games. Those schools have a recruiting advantage, period, end of statement. So, so we, don't, or we don't have an ideal uh, world as, as it exists today. We don't have an you know, ubiquitous world. So, so I don't think that this is going to have, you know, that's certainly not going to, 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 to ruin that. And I, I would just say that for me, this bill is is all about morals. It's all about values, values like fairness, uh, values like making sure that um, athletes have the same rights as every other student at the school. As Jeremy pointed out, musicians can can make music. Um, and why shouldn't athletes be able to profit from their name, image, and likeness as well? Especially when you look at how much universities are making off of these athletes. You know, if you look at how much the coaches are paid, if you look at how much the NCAA makes selling TV rights. Why are the people who are getting the least in this whole equation the people who are doing the work? I want to thank you all for being a part of this conversation. Thanks so much for having us. Likewise. Thank you. Democratic State Senator Jeff Bridges from Arapahoe County is sponsoring a bill to allow student-athletes to accept endorsements in exchange for the use of their name, image, and likeness. Jeremy Bloom is a former Olympian and world champion skier who also played football at the University of Colorado Boulder. And Rick George is the CU Athletic Director. Kids officially become adults at 18. Or do they? Our country has struggled with this question. Kids can drive at 16, they can join the military at 18, but they can't drink alcohol in Colorado or use marijuana until they're 21. April Alexander has been studying this question of when children become adults, particularly in the area of criminal justice. She's a psychology professor at the University of Denver. She spoke with my colleague, Andrea Dukakis. April, welcome to the show. Thank you. This week, we spoke with a man named Curtis Brooks. He'd been behind bars since he was 15. He's 40 now. And he was sentenced in Colorado to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He was recently granted clemency and released. Brooks is one of hundreds who are kids and are now adults sentenced to life without parole when they were under 18. But recently, the thinking's changed around sentences for young people. Can you explain what's led to that change? Courts are starting to consider social science research in their decision-making for sentencing now. We've had a ton of social science research in the last couple decades that talked about the adolescent brain and when it truly develops. So the adolescent brain fully develops around age 25. Um, That's one of the reasons why our car insurance goes down at age 25, because our brain's uh, frontal lobe, which is responsible for decision-making, impulse control, future-oriented thinking, that's the key part that doesn't develop until that late adolescent period. So if we're thinking about culpability for juveniles in the system, uh, should we be holding 14, 15, 16-year-olds accountable for their actions if their brains aren't fully developed and they're not thinking of the consequences at that time? Additionally, uh, we need to be considering rehabilitation. So if our youth are likely to be rehabilitated, uh, does it make sense to give sentences of life without the possibility of parole? In recent years, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, has steadily chipped away at harsh sentences for juveniles. And a lot of that was based on the research you just cited. 
again, in the court's decision-making, they have used the social science research to reconsider how we're treating juveniles in our system. Uh, so within the last couple decades, we've removed death penalty for juveniles. Uh, we've removed life without the possibility of parole for juveniles. Uh, and the Supreme Court really hinging onto that research and thinking about uh, the possibility for rehabilitation. So right now, uh, there's a bunch of cases throughout the United States that are being reconsidered, reevaluated, to see if these uh, once juveniles can be uh, released back into their communities. Is there evidence, though, that kids who get in trouble with the law are more likely to rehabilitate than adults? Yes, there is some evidence. There was a professor by the name of Terry Moffat had thought about this theory a long time ago that most adolescents do engage in some degree of risk-taking behavior. Uh, that's drinking, smoking, risky sexual behavior. But again, as that brain starts developing, they usually stop that behavior around 19, 20, 21. Uh, so the majority of our kids who are in the system are engaging in those low-level types of, if you want to say, offenses or just risk-taking behavior, and then they stop around that late adolescent period. Now, there is a small uh, portion of juveniles who are called these life course persistent offenders. They usually have rich histories of trauma, behavioral problems in school, and they continue on this criminal pattern throughout the uh, adolescent life cycle. So we do know that there's those two kind of categories of kids with that second category being a small percentage of the population uh, that le needs a little bit more intervention and assistance in order to be rehabilitated. Are there some young people who should be kept behind bars for a long, long time? I don't know about that. One of the things that I want to kind of refocus on is thinking about how do we get these adolescents proper resources. So for some of these persistent offenders, a lot of them do have trauma histories. So did they get trauma treatment so they wouldn't go on to this pattern of offending? We know that trauma treatment is really effective. It's even really effective in the short term. Are we giving these young folks substance abuse treatment? All these different risk factors that they came in with, are we actually addressing those so we can consider whether or not they need to be in the system for long? periods of time. So I think it's an early assessment and early intervention question in thinking about what will this population look like and can they successfully be rehabilitated? And I am optimistic if we are providing them with the proper resources. At the same time, this is also a public safety issue. If they go through the juvenile system, you know, they get out in seven years for a serious violent crime, then the public could be at risk. Absolutely. So I want to rethink about what is the job of our juvenile justice system and adult criminal justice system. If it is purely detention and retribution, then we're doing that. However, we're doing that poorly because it's not preventing future violence and it's not creating safer communities. So what if it were to change into accountability? Uh, let's hold people accountable for their actions. And then think about rehabilitation or habilitation if uh, people never had um, education before and aren't well-versed in vocational trades, then they need to be habilitated, getting that education to begin with, in order to be successful and be a thriving citizen. Because our current system isn't working, and a majority of Americans do agree with that. When do you think, uh, speaking generally, kids' brains become adult brains? Yeah, it's kind of this hard question because it differs from person to person. 
Again, this 25 kind of uh, age point is what's been commonly cited in the literature, but we have to think about other factors that can impact um, development. So again, thinking about trauma history, thinking about access to adequate food, clean water, all these different environmental factors, that some of those things can impact the brain. We know a lot of people who enter the criminal justice system have a history of traumatic brain injuries. So what impact does that have on their development? So it can be this kind of fluid concept for some youth. You teach graduate students and you've discussed with your students the inconsistencies when it comes to how 18 to 21-year-olds are treated. Can you explain where you think the greatest inconsistencies are in society generally? The question that I had for my students is, when am I actually an adult? Because the barometer changes based on situation. So at 18, I can't drink, but I can go into the military. At 17, I can possibly get sentenced for life um, in prison. But again, I can't vote. So there's a lot of inconsistencies in our systems on what is the age of majority. This is fluid and messy right now. Uh, If we're thinking about even the vaping laws, we're raising cigarette use and vaping use to 21. Why is that? Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I think it's positive because, again, if we're thinking about the brain and the impact of maybe these substances on the brain, that makes a little bit sense. Let's raise it. Let's make sure the brain's fully developed then people can make the choice of whether or not they want to use these substances that could impact their functioning. But then should the government be waiting till they're 25? Should they? (laughs) Again, what is this age point going to be? What then changes? Are there going to be broad systemic changes? Uh, So I argued, you know, should we wait until people enter the military or the police force till 25? Again, Mm -hmm. thinking uh, their brains are a little bit more developed, thinking about our police officers who uh, encounter some traumatic situations. And again, trauma impacts the brain. And if it's impacting the developing brain, maybe it's not the wisest idea. So I think as we consider this research, uh, a lot will change, hopefully for the better. Given what we know about the juvenile brain, do you have any thoughts about young people driving at 16? Um, Again, uh, thinking about at 16, uh, what were we all doing at 16? Uh, So we know that 16-year-olds engage in risk-taking behavior like speeding, maybe the texting and driving, and that risk-taking behavior does reduce a little bit later in adolescence. Even some researchers are calling the 18 to 23 period late adolescence Mm. and recognizing the brain is still developing and a lot of those things are going to diminish over time. So I know that's been the standard for decades. Uh, What would it look like if we didn't train people to drive until 19? That's going to be really tricky and hard. That's the question that my students posed. Wait, uh, you expect me to go out and live on my own at 18, get a job at 18, go to school at 18? And I do that and I do that well. So when is it infantilizing versus when is it making a better decision for that person? April, thanks so much for chatting with us. Thank you. April Alexander is a psychology professor at the University of Denver. She spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Alexander's looked at the question of when children become adults, especially when it comes to criminal justice. That's it for Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. Thanks to our producers and audio engineers. And thank you for joining us on Colorado Matters from CPR News.